Hey, it's Guy here. And in just a moment, we've got a great episode from our archives for you today. It's all about misconceptions. But really quickly, before we start the show, a lot of you ask how you can support the TED Radio Hour. And the best way to do that is to support your local public radio station. Here at NPR, we're launching our annual end-of-the-year fundraising campaign, and the clock is ticking to get your contributions in. So throughout the month, I hope you'll take a little bit of time to reflect on what this show has meant to you this year. And then, if it has meant something, please go to donate.npr.org slash TEDradio to support your local station. And thanks. Okay, so a little bit about this week's episode. You know the story of David and Goliath, right? Of course you do. The small shepherd boy who defeats the terrifying giant. It's a tale of improbable victory, a celebration of the underdog. Or is it? Today's episode is all about misconceptions, and it originally aired in November of 2013. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And our show today, misconceptions, things you know to be true until they aren't. Is there something you always believed and then you found out it was it was wrong? Huh. Well, I sort of feel like that's true all the time. I feel like what I believe about the world today is so different from what I believed five or ten years ago. Yeah. And the, but there, there are things that we... Like, we're sure are true. We're convinced they are true. Like, like there was a brontosaurus. Mm-hmm. But in fact, there was never a brontosaurus because kids now learn about the apatosaurus. Uh, but there was never a brontosaurus. There wow. was never. It was just two apatosauruses from different parts of the body, and <laughs> they just discovered that that's what it was. It was no brontosaurus. I didn't, you know, I did not know that until you said that right now. My world has now been rocked. I feel like no brontosaurus. Brontosaurus was a permanent part of my kind of intellectual arsenal. And now it's gone. Gone. Completely gone from Malcolm Gladwell's life. And this is what he does. He he writes books about all the things we thought we knew to be true that turn out to be wrong. I'm sorry to have <laughs> bro- broken this to you like this. I'm Well, this is what I'm saying. I mean, you're never more alive than when things get turned upside down. I love the feeling, actually, of getting my apple cart overturned. And on the show today, things that might possibly overturn your apple cart as well. Five misconceptions about things we are convinced are right. So let's start with Malcolm Gladwell's TED Talk. So I wanted to tell a story that really obsessed me when I was writing my new book. And the reason the story obsessed me is that I thought I understood it, and then I went back over it and I realized that I didn't understand it at all. Um, Ancient Palestine had a... So you know this story. It's a famous battle which may or may not have taken place sometime in the late 10th, early 9th century BC. The Israelites, they were led by King Saul and they were fighting the Philistines. 
and they were locked in a stalemate across a valley. So they decide to settle it once and for all in one epic battle between two warriors. The Philistines go first. And the Philistine who is sent down, their mighty warrior, is a giant. He's six foot nine. He's got armor, a sword, javelin, a spear. He is absolutely terrifying. And none of the Israelites want to take him on, except this young shepherd boy. And he goes up to Saul and he says, I'll fight him. Saul says, you can't fight him. That's ridiculous. You're this kid. This is this mighty warrior. But the shepherd is adamant. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I have been defending my flock against uh, lions and wolves for years. I think I can do it. So Saul says, okay. And the boy, he picks up a few stones. And puts them in his shepherd's bag and starts to walk down the mountainside to meet the giant. And from a distance, the giant sees this tiny little man holding a shepherd's staff. He's insulted. And he says, am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the shepherd boy says nothing. He just winds up his sling and with only one rock, he hits the target. Right between the eyes. And the giant falls down, either dead or unconscious. And the shepherd boy runs up and takes his sword and cuts off his head. And the Philistines see this and they turn and they just run. And of course, the name of the giant is Goliath and the name of the shepherd boy is David. And the reason that story has obsessed me over the course of writing my book is that everything I thought I knew about that story turned out to be wrong. I mean, everything you thought you knew about this was wrong. The emphasis is all wrong. It's, the story is dramatic. In the, it's, I think it's more dramatic when you know the hidden story. David in that story is supposed to be the underdog, right? In fact, that term, David and Goliath, has entered our language as a metaphor for improbable victories by some weak party over someone far stronger. Now, why do we call David an underdog? Well, we call him an underdog because all he has is, is giant is that, is that Goliath is outfitted with all of this modern weaponry, right? this glittering coat of armor and, a, and a, a sword and a javelin and a spear, and all David has is this sling. Well, let's start there with the phrase, all David has is this sling, because that's the first mistake that we make. In ancient warfare, there are three kinds of warriors. There's cavalry. There is heavy infantry, and there is artillery. And artillery are archers, but more importantly, slingers. And a slinger is someone who has a leather pouch with two long cords attached to it. And they put a projectile, either a rock or a lead ball, inside the pouch, and they whirl it around like this, and they let one of the cords go, and the effect is to send the projectile forward at, um, uh, towards its target. That's what David has. And it's important to understand that that sling is not a slingshot, right? It's not a child's toy. When David whirls it around like this, he's, he's turning his, uh, the sling around probably at six or seven revolutions per second. And that means that when the rock is released, it's going forward 
really fast, probably 35 meters per second. More than that, the stones in the Valley of Elah were not normal rocks, they were barium sulfate, which are rocks twice the density of normal stones. If you do the calculations on the ballistic, on the stopping power of the rock fired from David's sling, it's roughly equal to the stopping power of a 45 millimeter handgun, right? This is an incredibly devastating weapon. From medieval tapestries, uh, we know that slingers were capable of hitting birds in flight. They're incredibly accurate, right? When David lines up, and he's not 200 yards away from Goliath, he's quite close to Goliath. When he lines up and fires that thing at Goliath, there is, he has every intention and every expectation of being able to hit Goliath at his most vulnerable spot between his eyes. It's not just that we misunderstand David and his choice of weaponry. It's also that we profoundly misunderstand Goliath. Goliath is not what he seems to be. There's all kinds of hints of this in the biblical text. Um, things that are, in retrospect, are quite puzzling and don't square with his image as this mighty warrior. So to begin with, the Bible makes special note of how slowly Goliath moves. Now that is weird, right? Here is this mighty warrior. And then there's this strange, that strange comment he makes to David. Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Right? Sticks? David only has one stick. Well, it turns out that there's been a great deal of speculation within the medical community over the years about uh, whether there's something wrong with, fundamentally wrong with Goliath, an attempt to make sense of all of those apparent anomalies. So Goliath is head and shoulders above all of his peers in that era. And usually when someone is that far out of the norm, there's an explanation for it. So the most common form of giantism uh, is a condition called acromegaly. And acromegaly is caused by a benign tumor on your uh, pituitary gland. Do you remember the wrestler Andre the Giant, famous? He had acromegaly. There's even speculation that uh, Abraham Lincoln had acromegaly. Right? And acromegaly has a very distinct set of side effects associated with it, principally having to do with uh, vision. Uh, the, pituitary tumor, as it grows, often starts to compress the visual nerves in your brain, with the result that people with acromegaly have either uh, double vision or they are profoundly nearsighted. Right? Uh, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? He sees two sticks when David has only one. So the Israelites up on the mountain ridge looking down on him thought he was this extraordinarily powerful foe. What they didn't understand was that the very thing that was the source of his apparent strength was also the source of his greatest weakness. Goliath is a sitting duck. He doesn't have a chance, right? So why do we keep calling David an underdog and why do we keep referring to his victory as improbable? And there is, I think, in that a very important lesson for all of us. Giants are not as strong and powerful as they seem. And sometimes the shepherd boy has a sling in his pocket. Thank you. I mean, I, like, I feel like, like I've been thrown a little bit off balance. Good. I like that. I take that as high <laughs> praise. <laughs> but, but, but then a part of me is like, 
you know, surely most underdogs don't come with the advantages of David, you know, like facing a partially blind adversary who's lumbering and slow. Well, although maybe not. I mean, so you have uh, all kinds of software companies out there that do battle against the giants like Microsoft and have done very well in recent years. And if you ask them why, well, they would say, well, the giant is kind of lumbering and blind and slow. I mean, I don't think we need, we there are any shortage of examples of countries or companies or individuals who have gotten very, very successful and have, as a result, um, become vulnerable to a more nimble, hungrier opponent armed with the weapons of the spirit. I mean, I sort of think that's the narrative of our age. So so why is this misconception? I mean, why is is that our narrative? I think that there's a thing, particularly when when a story turns into a metaphor, it becomes very difficult to displace. And once something turns into a metaphor, I just don't think we we bother to revisit it anymore. You know, we kind of we get lazy. And that's 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 probably half the reason right there. So does that mean we're all going to want to be Goliath? Well, no, it just changes the definitions. What we should think of is not underdog versus favorite. Um, it is rather the difference between established and powerful and large and a nimble, audacious outsider. It's the startup versus Microsoft. It's Tesla versus BMW. And once you rephrase it, you get away from the simplistic way of saying one guy's supposed to win and one guy's not. It's not that. It's that their arsenal is profoundly different. And there'll be different outcomes depending on how the battle is, is configured. Malcolm Gladwell, you can see his full talk at TED.com. His new book about all this is called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. More misconceptions in a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Microsoft. Microsoft wants you to know that the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, is now faster and more powerful than ever before. So you can get even more done, whether it's from your office or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop. With up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor, you can work how you want to for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Thanks also to Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is complete wireless protection for your home that can be self-installed in under an hour. There are no long-term contracts and no hidden fees. CNET, the wire cutter, and PC Mag have all named Simply Safe their top pick for home security. And Simply Safe protects over 2 million people every day. Learn more about Simply Safe and get a special holiday offer on their systems at simplysafe.com/radiohour. Hey, it's Kat Chow with the Code Switch team. A few years ago, I adopted this cute, but also shy, beagle mix from a dog rescue. But I noticed really fast that he mostly barked at my friends of color. It made me wonder, 
is my dog racist? So I went to find out. Check it out on the next Code Switch podcast. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and our show today all about misconceptions, the things we seem to think are true, like, for example, fortune cookies eaten by people in China. So writer Jennifer Ailey flew to China with a bag of fortune cookies, and she started handing them out to people on the streets of Beijing. And what happened? Yeah. So if you give fortune cookies to um, Chinese people, they're really perplexed because they're like, oh, what's this? And <laughs> like, oh, it's a, you know, it's a cookie from America. And then so they'll put it. So they're fine. Right. And they put it in their mouth and then they bite. And then suddenly they're like, oh, my God, there's like a piece of paper in my mouth. Right. They're like, Americans are so strange. Why are they putting paper in their cookies? <laughs> So Jennifer Lee decided to dig into her own Chinese heritage, particularly the food, and she uncovered all kinds of stuff about it that almost no one knows, like the story behind one of the most beloved of all Chinese foods, General Tsao's chicken. Here's your talk. General Tsao's chicken, which, by the way, in the U.S. Naval Academy is called Admiral Tsao's chicken. Um, I love this dish. The original name of my book was actually called The Long March of General Tsao, and he has marched very far indeed. And indeed, that actually was a picture of General Tao. I went to his hometown. This is a billboard that says, welcome to the birthplace of General Tao. And I went looking for chicken, actually found a whole bunch of General Tao's relatives who are still in the little town, showed them all the pictures of General Tao's chicken that I showed you. And they're like, we don't know this dish. And then they're like, is this Chinese food? Because it doesn't look like Chinese food to them. But they weren't kind of surprised I traveled around the world to visit them because in, in, in their eyes, he is, after all, a famous Qing Dynasty military hero. He played an important role in the Taiping Rebellion, which was a war started by a guy who thought he was the son of God and the baby brother of Jesus Christ, and caused the war to kill 20 million people, still the deadliest civil war in the world to this day. Uh, so, you know, I realized when I was there, General Tao is kind of a lot like Colonel Sanders in America in that he's known <laughs> for chicken and not war. But in China, this guy's actually known for war and not chicken. But I love General Tao's chicken. I think it's really too. It's like, so good. A, like, mm. like an amazing creation <laughs> for this incredible. universe. Yeah. Um, did, did you grow up eating that kind of Chinese food? Yes, I grew up eating Chinese food in at, at home where my mom would make it. And then also we ate American Chinese food because there were Chinese takeouts. And I would go and order the um, beef with broccoli and like roast pork lo mein and, you know, chicken fried rice. And it wasn't until I really went to China that I understood that this food that I'd been eating growing up was not Chinese. There was no reminder ever that the thing on your plate ever flew or walked or swam. Like everything is sort of stripped of its like animalness. But in China, it's like, bring it on. Like, you know, you have like hooves and tongue and blood and ears. I mean, that's when I really kind of came to understand that what I had been experiencing in New York restaurants in the Upper West Side was not Chinese at all. Like fortune cookies, as we heard, not Chinese, but actually Japanese. In, uh, in Kyoto, outside, there's still small family-run bakeries that make fortune cookies, as they did over 100 years ago, 30 years before fortune cookies 
were introduced in the United States. If you see them side by side, there's yellow and brown. Theirs are actually flavored with miso and sesame paste, so they're not as sweet as our version. So how do they get to the United States? Well, the short answer is the Japanese immigrants came over and a bunch of um, the bakers introduced them using very much the similar kind of irons that we saw back in Kyoto. So this, the interesting question is, well, how do you go from fortune cookies being something that is Japanese to something that is being Chinese? Well. The short answer is, well, we locked up all the Japanese during World War II, including those that made fortune cookies. So that's the time when the Chinese moved in, kind of saw a market opportunity and took over. <laughs> so fortune cookies, invented by the Japanese, popularized by the Chinese, but ultimately consumed by Americans. They are more American than anything else. In contrast, we have General Tao's chicken, which actually started in New York City in the early 1970s. But that dish also took about 10 years to spread across America from random restaurant in New York City. Someone's like, oh god, it's sweet, it's fried, it's chicken. Americans will love this. So the thing is, this kind of idea of Chinese-American food doesn't exist only in America. For example, there is French-Chinese food, where they serve salt and pepper frog legs. There is Italian-Chinese food, where they don't have fortune cookies. So they serve fried gelato. My downstairs neighbor, Alessandra, was completely shocked when I told her, dude, fried gelato is not Chinese. She's like, it's not? But they serve it in all the Chinese restaurants in Italy. <laughs> There is West Indian Chinese food, there's Middle Eastern Chinese food, there's Peruvian Chinese food, which should not be mixed with Mexican Chinese food, where they basically take things and make it look like fajitas. And then <laughs> my personal favorite of all the restaurants I encountered on the in the around the world was this one in Brazil called Kong Food. <laughs> Could you make the argument that, that Chinese immigrants, you know, became Chinese Americans in some ways through Chinese food? I mean, definitely the journey of Chinese food in a very macro way is a story of immigration everywhere, which is that you take the local ingredients and you combine it in a way that looks foreign on the outside, but is sort of indigenous to that native land. Um, so, you know, what happens to me with some regularity is people ask you, you know, so where are you from? And be in New York. And I'm like, I'm from New York. And they're like, no, no, where are you really from? And I'm like, dude, I was like born and raised in New York and I live there now. So sort of a dish like General's House Chicken now has become so American. It's unrecognized by Chinese people in China who, who look at that and are like, is that Chinese food? It, it has become its own cuisine that is distinctive and recognizable. It, it's almost like foreignness. In, in some ways, is, is becoming extinct. Yeah. I would say over time, it will, um, this idea of otherness will morph significantly. So the thing is, our historical lore, because of the way we like narratives, are full of vast characters, such as, you know, Howard Schultz with Starbucks and um, Ray Kroc with McDonald's and the Chandler with uh, Coca-Cola. But, you know, it's very easy to overlook the smaller characters. For example, like Lem Seng, who introduced Chop Suey, Chef Pung, who introduced um, General Tao's Chicken, and all the Japanese bakers who introduced fortune cookies. So the point of my presentation is to make you think twice that those whose names are forgotten in history can often have had as much, if not more, impact on what we eat today. So thank you very much. Writer Jennifer A. Lee, she's 
she tells her story in the Fortune Cookie Chronicles. Her talk is one of the funniest things you will ever see at TED.com. So what do you get with your with your check at, at a restaurant in, in China? Um, fruit. Oh. Actually, here in the United States, um, if you're Chinese, they'll often give you fruit. Wait, so when you go to a Chinese restaurant, there's kind of a wink and, and, and somebody will give you fruit, but like... If I go, they won't even do that. They'll just give me fortune cookies. Yeah, it's this whole. It's like, yeah, it is not wow. just. It's not even a secret wink and nod. It's just understood. It's like a like a whole different parallel universe oh, really? <laughs> that people who don't know cannot partake in. Okay, so what I am about to tell you, not a misconception about. Two-thirds of the world's grasslands are slowly turning into desert. Now, you are told over and over, repeatedly, that desertification is caused by livestock, mostly cattle, sheep, and goats, overgrazing the plants, leaving the soil bare, and giving off methane. Almost everybody knows this, from Nobel laureates to golf caddies, or was taught it, as I was. Well... I have news for you. We were once just as certain that the world was flat. We were wrong then, and we are wrong again. Okay, so when Alan Savory, who's an ecologist, when he said this on the TED stage in front of hundreds of scientists, you could hear the collective sound of shock. And then it got more shocking because Alan said this is the solution. There is only one option. I repeat to you, only one option left to climatologists and scientists, and that is to do the unthinkable and to use livestock bunched and moving as a proxy for former herds and predators and mimic nature. There is no other alternative left to mankind. Now, here's the important thing to know. The way cows and sheep and goats graze does, in fact, contribute to desertification. And Alan acknowledges that fact. But those same animals can also be the solution to reversing the problem. And the origins of this idea go back to when Alan was living in southern Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, back in the 1950s. And I used to pride myself on never living six months in an area without knowing every bird, every mammal, every grass, every tree, shrub. So that really was my early days and most of the degradation I'd seen growing up as a youngster. We all blamed the livestock. You and probably most of your colleagues thought livestock were like the enemy, right? We didn't think it. We knew it. So Alan's job at the time was to identify huge areas of land in southern Africa that could become protected national parks. They kicked out the native hunters, and everything seemed great until Alan noticed that the grasslands were becoming deserts, and it was happening really quickly. And he thought that the elephants, by stomping around and grazing everywhere, might be causing the problem. Suspecting that we had too many elephants now... I recommended that we would have to reduce their numbers and bring them down to a level that the land could sustain. So our government formed a team of experts to evaluate my research. They agreed with me, and over the following years, we shot 40,000 elephants to try to stop the damage. And it got worse, not better. That was the saddest and greatest blunder of my life, and I will carry that to my grave. 
So that was a very big jolt. And so it just became the beginning of a long, tortuous path, striving and looking for an answer. And like all things, uh, accidentally almost a breakthrough came uh, when one day I spotted a corner of one piece of a ranch where I got terribly excited because suddenly I was seeing better land, more litter on the soil, more diversity of species. And what I found was that sheep had bunched together and crowded apparently during a storm and the land had suddenly improved and that clicked in my mind and I realized oh my goodness we can use livestock perhaps to mimic nature and mimic the wildlife herd so let me work out how to do that. This was his eureka moment. It was when Alan Savory who for years thought that herds of livestock were actually killing land he came to the conclusion that maybe livestock could actually save the land, too, if you could just get them to mimic the way wild animals used to move and graze. What we had failed to understand was that the soil and the vegetation developed with very large numbers of grazing animals, and that these grazing animals developed with ferocious pack-hunting predators. Now, the main defense against pack-hunting predators is to get into herds, and the larger the herd, the safer the individuals. Now, large herds dung and urinate all over their own food, and they have to keep moving. And it was that movement that prevented the overgrazing of plants, while the periodic trampling ensured good cover of the soil. So basically, when these, like, giant wild herds, right, are, like, trample over the land and go to the bathroom and leave waste and, and everything, uh, this is actually vital. We, we, this is a process that is crucial. Yes, and as I said in the talk, any gardener understands what I'm doing. If you've got a square meter or square yard of bare ground and ask a gardener what should you do to get plants growing and to get the rain retained in the soil, and they'll tell you to chip it up, break the surface, cover it with litter, mulch, litter, dead plant material, and plants will begin to grow and water will be retained in the soil. And Alan came up with a whole system for this. He calls it holistic grazing. And the first step is kind of counterintuitive. Think about the field where cows graze, but not... Not from the point of view of the cattle. In other words, where there were poisonous plants, where there was low-lying land that could be flooded, where there were crops that would have to be avoided, where there were wildlife needs. We put all of these just out on a chart, very simply, one step at a time. And then you send your cows only to the best spots to graze. And then you have to figure out how not to overgraze. So planning backwards from that, we worked out on average how many days we'd be in an area Then we balanced those out for the quality of the forage, and we literally, with a pencil and a razor, plotted the moves of the animals through the next few months. And so basically, individualized, field-specific diet plans for cows, or sheep, or goats, all livestock, really. It has been challenged. Your science has been challenged, right? I mean, the researchers have looked at the data. No, it hasn't. No, they are challenging what I'm not saying. What do you think they're challenging? I I am saying you must have no prescribed grazing rotation or system. You have to use a holistic planning process, okay? And no scientist has challenged that. What they've done is dropped that, converted it to a rotational grazing, short-duration grazing system, and proved it doesn't work. 
well, I said that 50 years ago. Allen's tested his method out on more than 40 million acres across five continents, including in a place in Africa where across a stretch of field, he could compare his results to land where the livestock grazed in a more conventional way. This is land close to land that we manage in Zimbabwe. It has just come through four months of very good rains we've got that year. All of that rain, almost all of it, has evaporated from the soil surface. Their river is dry despite the rain just having ended, okay? And we have 150,000 people on almost permanent food aid. Now let's go to our land nearby on the same day with the same rainfall and look at that. Our river is flowing and healthy and clean, it's fine. The production of grass, shrubs, trees, wildlife, everything is now more productive and we have virtually no fear of dry years. And we did that by increasing the cattle and goats 400%, planning the grazing to mimic nature and integrate them with all the elephants, buffalo, giraffe and other animals that we have. Now, this method, again, even though it did work, it made a lot of people very, very angry. When people say, like, even people who you respect, they they say, this is insane, this is crazy. I mean, a part of you gets that. Like, you understand why they would react that way. Absolutely, because it's how I reacted. I hated livestock. I was on public record in Rhodesia of saying I was prepared to shoot any rancher because they were raping the land that I was trying to save. I had to back down. I had to apologize. I had to say I was wrong. And I had to start working with ranchers and find out that the only solution was their livestock. So I understand all the shock. So you are, I mean, you are as sure of this as you are as sure that you were wrong about, about the elephants. You're, you're that sure that you're right about this. I would stake my life on it. I would love it if some scientist in the world would tell me and tell the public where I'm wrong or let us get moving. Alan Savory, he heads up the Savory Institute, which promotes holistic grazing. And you can see his full talk at TED.com. More misconceptions coming up. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, listeners to this program can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash hour. Thanks also to Capital One. With the new Capital One Saver Card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out that new restaurant everyone's talking about and 4% on watching your team win at home. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. 
And one very last thing, don't forget to go to donate.npr.org slash tedradio to show your support for our show and for your local public radio station. And thanks. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and our show today is all about misconceptions. So here's something we all know, right? It absolutely sucks to be a Chinese factory worker, right? Long hours and low wages, forced labor, dangerous environments. Work environments are dangerous and living conditions are humiliating. And a growing number of these workers are either killing themselves or trying to. Leslie Cheng was a reporter for The Wall Street Journal in China for 10 years. And she wanted to see for herself if, in fact, it was so hard to be a worker in a Chinese factory. Here's the opening from her TED Talk. Hi, so I'd like to talk a little bit about the people who make the things we use every day. Our shoes, our handbags, our computers and cell phones. It's taken for granted that Chinese factories are oppressive and that it's our desire for cheap goods that makes them so. So this simple narrative equating Western demand and Chinese suffering is appealing, especially at a time when many of us already feel guilty about our impact on the world. But it's also inaccurate and disrespectful. Chinese workers are not forced into factories because of our insatiable desire for iPods. They choose to leave their homes in order to earn money, to learn new skills, and to see the world. This is, like, so counterintuitive. This is not what many of us have been led to believe. That was kind of the starting point for my research into factory workers in China, was that everyone always assumes, oh, these poor workers, they're suffering, they're slaves, all for the sake of making our iPhones and iPads and iPods. And I was thinking, even before I went down to these factory towns, that can't be true. There can't be millions of people who are leaving their villages and going to the cities purely to suffer. I mean, that isn't how things work. All right, can we go back to the, to the narrative that we thought we knew, right? The New York Times had this whole series on it. There were there was the infamous stories uh, by Mike Daisy and his one-man show. I mean, where does that narrative come from? I mean, it can't be entirely false. It depends on what you're asking. I mean, certainly there are cases where workers have terrible conditions, where they get injured, where they get killed on the job. What I'm saying is it doesn't happen to every worker, which you might say, of course, that's obvious. We know it doesn't happen to every worker. But when you only write stories about the abuses and the injuries, it really gives people an impression that these people are just suffering 24-7. And that's what motivated me to go down to Dongguan, this factory city in South China, for the first time. What are some of the, like, the products that we use that are made in Dongguan? Oh, gosh. Everything. Everything connected with your mobile phone, desktop computer, laptop computers, um, Nokia has a big plant, Samsung has a big plant. They make handbags, they make coach bags, the sports sack, Dooney and Burke, clothing, houseware, shoes, Adidas, Nike, Reebok, plastic, everything. Basically, anything you think of when you think made in China is probably made in some form in Dongguan. And in Dongguan, Leslie spent about two years getting to know lots of factory workers down there. Certain subjects came up over and over. How much money they made, what kind of husband they hoped to marry, whether they should jump to another factory or stay where they were. 
Other subjects came up almost never, including living conditions that to me looked close to prison life. 10 or 15 workers in one room, 50 people sharing a single bathroom, days and nights ruled by the factory clock. Everyone they knew lived in similar circumstances, and it was still better than the dormitories and homes of rural China. The workers rarely spoke about the products they made, and they often had great difficulty explaining what exactly they did. When I asked Lu Qinmin, the young woman I got to know best, what exactly she did on the factory floor, she said something to me in Chinese that sounded like qiuxi. Only much later did I realize that she'd been saying QC, or quality control. Karl Marx saw this as the tragedy of capitalism, the alienation of the worker from the product of his labor. But like so many theories that Marx arrived at, sitting in the reading room of the British Museum, he got this one wrong. Just because a person spends her time making a piece of something does not mean that she becomes that, a piece of something. What she does with the money she earns, what she learns in that place, and how it changes her, these are the things that matter. So um, this young woman that you got to know, Min, right, um, in Dongguan, what does she think about how conflicted, you know, so many people are about all this in the West? I mean, would she even care? No, no, they don't. She doesn't, and the workers that I've met don't. And that's another huge misconception that I feel about how American consumers see these Chinese workers in a very abstract way, is they assume that that worker is thinking, oh, it's so horrible, the person buying this is so rich and I'm so poor, it's so terrible, my iPhone, I'd have to work five months to be able to afford to buy an iPhone. I mean, they're not thinking these things at all, you know, as far as all the workers I've encountered. They're thinking, okay, I want to save this much money this month, and then I want to go take an English class, and then I want to jump to another factory and become a secretary, and then I want to marry my boyfriend, and then I want to live in the city, and then I want to, you know, they're thinking about their own plans and their own futures, and the product they're making is exactly that. It's a product. It's just a tool for their own life and their own future. And why is that so different from a worker anywhere else? The first time I met Min, she had just turned 18 and quit her first job on the assembly line of an electronics factory. Over the next two years, I watched as she switched jobs five times, eventually landing a lucrative post in the purchasing department of a hardware factory. Later, she married a fellow migrant worker, moved with him to his village, gave birth to two daughters, and saved enough money to buy a second-hand Buick for herself and a, an apartment for her parents. She recently re returned to Dongguan on her own to take a job in a factory that makes construction cranes, temporarily leaving her husband and children back in the village. In a recent email to me, she explained, a person should have some ambition while she is young, so that in old age she can look back on her life and feel that it was not lived to no purpose. I mean, that's social mobility. I mean, clearly she moved to a different class. And is the assumption that her children will be educated and won't work in factories? Yeah, I think this 
story of industrialization and urbanization is a story of millions of people leaving their villages and moving to the cities and becoming middle class. And someone like Min, she is now living in the city with her husband and her two kids. And yeah, eventually those girls will become indistinguishable from other city girls. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge story of social mobility, which is the story of China. Across China, there are 150 million workers like her, one-third of them women, who have left their villages to work in the factories, the hotels, the restaurants, and the construction sites of the big cities. Together, they make up the largest migration in history. And it is globalization, this chain that begins in a Chinese farming village and ends with iPhones in our pockets and Nikes on our feet and coach handbags on our arms, that has changed the way these millions of people work and marry and live and think. Very few of them would want to go back to the way things used to be. And someone might be hearing this, Leslie, and they might say, well, I mean, you're just absolving us of, of our responsibility in this sort of cycle. I mean, are you? I don't know where that assumption of guilt comes from. I mean, this is the global marketplace. Why is it that when we buy products, we automatically have to assume guilt along with our purchases? You know, I mean, I think how does this story of poor farmers' children making these products tie in with this other image we have of China, which is this monolithic giant that's about to swallow up America? These two pictures kind of don't match, right? So what I get from that is... It's good to have this curiosity and to try to figure out more of how, what is the complicated picture of China today. Why do you think the main narrative was so attractive, like was so appealing? A few reasons. I mean, I, I think Americans, Westerners, often well-meaning, feel a lot of guilt about all the wealth that they have and this awareness that the people who are making these products don't have any kind of wealth. And sometimes it can be condescension, like just assuming that those people who are very poor and ignorant and don't have any thoughts and are only doing this because they have no choice. And when you really kind of look into their lives, you realize that many of them are very intelligent, very thoughtful, have very complicated lives and a lot of inspiration and aspiration for their own futures. Leslie Chang, her book about this is called Factory Girls. You can find her full talk at TED.com. Okay, misconception number five. Who doesn't like to have lots of choices, right? Like, say, for example, salad dressing. I want to say just a word about salad dressing. This is Barry Schwartz, a social psychologist, and this is from his TED Talk. 175 salad dressings in my supermarket. If you don't count the 10 extra virgin olive oils and 12 balsamic vinegars you could buy to make a very large number of your own salad dressings in the off chance that none of the 175 the store has on offer suits you. Which is what it's all about. Why we are happy. Why we live more fulfilling lives because of our limitless choices. The official dogma of all Western industrial societies runs like this. If we are interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize individual freedom. The way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have, and the more freedom they have, the more welfare they have. This, I think, is so 
deeply embedded in the water supply that it wouldn't occur to anyone. It is not true. How, how can that be? I mean, choice is what we all want, right? I mean, choice is a good thing. Absolutely, and, and it is a good thing. People want control, they want autonomy. The mistake that we've made is to think that since choice is good, it's only good. So I'm going to talk about what's bad about it. One effect, paradoxically, is that it produces paralysis rather than liberation. With so many options to choose from, people find it very difficult to choose at all. I'll give you one very dramatic example of this, a study that was done of uh, investments in uh, voluntary retirement plans. A colleague of mine got access to investment records from Vanguard, the gigantic mutual fund company of about a million employees in about 2,000 different workplaces. And what she found is that for every 10 mutual funds the employer offered, rate of participation went down 2%. You offer 50 funds, 10% fewer employees participate than if you only offer five. Why? Because with 50 funds to choose from, it's so damn hard to decide which fund to choose that you'll just put it off till tomorrow. And then tomorrow, and of course, tomorrow never comes. So that's one effect. The second effect is that even if we manage to overcome the paralysis and make a choice, we end up less satisfied with the result of the choice than we would be if we had fewer options to choose from. The more options there are, the easier it is to regret anything at all that is disappointing about the option that you chose. Too much choice actually makes us less free. It's paralysis rather than liberation, which sounds That's right. it sounds crazy. It does sound crazy. I mean, imagine you have cereal for breakfast every morning mm. and you, you alternate between Rice Krispies and corn checks. Okay. I don't like Rice Krispies and corn checks. The fact that there are alternatives makes my life better. Right. And so the logic here is that when you add options, you don't make anybody worse off because you can ignore them and you make somebody better off. Yeah. And that's perfectly sensible, logically. It just turns out not to be true <laughs> psychologically. <laughs> This hit me when I went to replace my jeans after years and years of wearing these old ones and the shopkeeper said, do you want slim fit, easy fit, relaxed fit? You want button fly or zipper fly? You want stone washed or acid washed? Do you want them distressed? Do you want boot cut? Do you want tapered? Blah, 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 on and on. He went, my jaw dropped. And after I recovered, I said, I want the kind that used to be the only kind. (laughs) He had no idea what that was. So I spent an hour trying on all these damn jeans, and I walked out of the store, truth, with the best-fitting jeans I had ever had. I did better, but I felt worse. Why? I wrote a whole book to try to explain this to myself. The reason is that with all of these options available, my expectations about how good a pair of jeans should be went up. And what I got was good, but it wasn't perfect. So here's the thing. I hear that, and I'm thinking, okay, this is about as American as it gets, right? I mean, you can choose whatever you want. You can do anything you want. Exactly so. So there's a cartoon that I show often when I give talks of a fishbowl, your typical goldfish bowl, 
and there's a parent fish and a baby fish, and the caption reads, you can be anything you want to be, no limits. <laughs> right? You know, we're supposed to laugh at the myopia of the parent fish, no limits in a fishbowl that has nothing in it. But I think the deep uh, insight is that everybody needs a fishbowl. So when you shatter the fishbowl, and my argument is that that's sort of what 21st century affluent uh, Western society is like. When you shatter the fishbowl and everything is possible, is that a good thing? And the answer, surprisingly to the assumptions we make, is that no, it's not a good thing. Choice within constraint is essential. Choice without constraint is paralyzing. So there's no question that some choice is better than none, but it doesn't follow from that that more choice is better than some choice. Nowadays, the world we live in, we affluent, industrialized citizens, with perfection, the expectation, the best you can ever hope for is that stuff is as good as you expect it to be. You will never be pleasantly surprised because your expectations, my expectations, have gone through the roof. The secret to happiness, this is what you all came for. The secret to happiness is low expectations. <laughs> then there was this nervous laughter. <laughs> But that seems maybe a little too pessimistic. So let me say the secret to happiness is to have realistic expectations. And if you're going to err, err on the low side. It's really nice to be pleasantly surprised. It sucks to be disappointed. Barry Schwartz, he's a psychologist who wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. You can find his entire talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Bridget McCarthy, with help from Daniel Shukin, Eric Newsom, and Portia Robertson-Migas. Our partners at TED include Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. All you want to do is fight. Oh, hey, you're wrong.